UFOs? Are they aliens? Government secret projects? The imaginings of disturbed individuals? Or just outright hoaxes? We're here to find out. Welcome to Jim Harold's UFO Encounters. Welcome to UFO Encounters. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And so glad that you had time to join us today. And I think we're going to have an interesting program. The topic is the book, Alien Agenda, Why They Came, Why They Stayed. Our guest is author Steve Peake. He is the author of this book. And uh, over the uh, course of Steve's career and life, he's had a couple of books published. And now that he's retired, he's decided to go into it in a little stronger way and has a successful book on Amazon. I'm looking here. Four and a half out of five stars, Alien Agenda, Why They Came, Why They Stayed. And it is a fiction book, but there's certainly some discussion that we're going to have today about some facts that maybe the book was based on and so forth. Steve, welcome to the program. So glad to have you, and uh, thanks for taking time today. Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here for my very first podcast interview. There you go. Hey, I I like it. We've had a couple of those lately. And um, I... um, why were you inspired to write this particular book? Have you been fascinated with UFOs and aliens all your life? Is it a new thing for you? What what spoke to you that you said, this is a book I want to write? Well, um, there are several things pretty far back in my, my past. Uh, my father was uh, in military intelligence. And he was uh, in the late mid to late fifties stationed in uh, Fort McPherson, outside of Atlanta, and he was the Project Blue Book officer for that region. Um, and I, he didn't talk much about it, but um, I would hear things and whatever. So that's kind of what got me interested in UFOs. Uh, then. Uh, in 1957, the the military or the government moved him from uh, military intelligence, and he became uh, the head of security for NASA. And so, throughout my years growing up until through through college, he was still very active. I mean, he wasn't just specializing in in UFOs, obviously, but they came under his uh, jurisdiction. And uh, later in life, before he died, uh, we would talk about things, and he would present to me theories. He'd never tell me anything. In fact, the only thing he ever told me was that if you ever experience a UFO, the best thing to do is just not tell anybody. Interesting. Um, his, His theory was that if you... If you see some have an experience and you're not a very credible witness, then nobody really cares. But if you see someone have an experience and you are credible or somebody who would have a background uh, such as an airline pilot uh, that could make people believe it, then if you persisted in your story, you would be persecuted. Interesting. Now that was back in the you know sixties and early seventies before he died. Uh, he's the one that that uh, got me interested in James Forrestal. He he always kind of admired Forrestal uh, his whole life, not just the UFO bit. Matter of fact, 
I'm not even sure my dad knew about the UFO bit of Forrestal uh, because he'd gone through World War II and, of course, knew who Forrestal was. And he may have known, but he never taught. Like I said, he never told me any facts. Everything I learned from him, I learned through kind of osmosis and friends of his. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that kind of had me interested in UFOs uh, very early. Uh, later, in uh, 1974, uh, I did have a UFO encounter. And um, I'm happy to tell you about it if you want to hear it. But sure, I don't absol- know. absolutely. I think that since this show is named UFO Encounters, I can't think of anything more appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. It was uh, the evening of October 9th. I was, at that time in my very young life, I was working for a public utility company in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was on the night shift, and I was driving home. Uh, Interstate 20 had only been open a short while, and there wasn't much traffic on it. And I was driving west, and it was about a 35, 40-minute drive. And as I drove down the interstate, and this is about between 12 and 12.30 at night, Mm -hmm. um, off to my left, I could see a light in the sky, and it wasn't very high. And it wasn't going very fast. In fact, it seemed to be pacing me. And it wasn't a big spotlight. It was just like a light on an airplane. So I figured it was a helicopter. Uh, When I got off the freeway, uh, when I got off the freeway, I turned over and went down. And I lived kind of in a wooded area, a subdivision, but a wooded area. And... Uh, the light turned, when I turned left, the light turned left, and then I was in trees, and I couldn't see it anymore. And I, I pretty much forgot about it for the next 10 minutes. Uh, then I pulled into uh, my driveway, and I got out of the car, and I had to open the trunk of the car, because in the back was uh, my son's third birthday present. His birthday was the next day. And it was one of those Mark's Big Wheel things. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, actually, I had one of those Mark's Big Wheel things, so I remember precisely what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> I got out of the car. It was a very clear night. Uh, I got out of the car, and I opened the trunk and uh, pulled that out. And just as I closed the trunk, I could see that uh, beyond my backyard and the neighbor's backyard, which backed up to mine, uh, probably a hundred yards away, uh, the light in the sky was back up and I, you know, not, not, not very high, but somewhat above the tree line. And, uh, I stood there watching it and I just had kind of a creepy feeling, but, you know, and then I realized why I was having a truly creepy feeling. And that was that there was no noise whatsoever. No wind, no sound, and here's what I thought was a helicopter was, you know, 100 yards away from me, maybe 50 feet off the ground, and I couldn't hear anything, Ooh. and uh, <clears throat> it didn't take me long to get that big wheel inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you have to get on it and ride it in. Yeah, really, um, it didn't take me long to get it inside the house. <laughs> so then, years go by, 
years go by, and uh, my son, who was in the, whose birthday it was the next day, um, every year before the night before his birthday, he would have what I think were called night terrors, not nightmares, but night terrors, where he, where he physically would get involved with whatever he was experiencing. And when you would ask him about it, or when the doctors asked him about it, it always had to do with, being a kid, monster faces coming close to him, going away, coming close to him, going away, fading in and out of his vision, and he was held down and couldn't move, and these monster faces were bothering him. And then, uh, so we found that out, and that we didn't have a clue. It only happened one night a year, the night before his birthday. Huh. And uh, we, once we found that out, I was trying to figure it out. And then, you know, I asked him if anything had happened on one of his birthdays that he remembered that would cause this. And he said the only thing it would be was the little, the little man. And so he started telling me about uh, that night of the, uh, the night of the big wheel, if we wanted to write a novel about it, uh, the night of the big wheel, he uh, was laying in bed. And something woke him up, and he looked up, just kind of opened his eyes a little bit. And and you got to remember, at this point, he would have been, uh, his next birthday, he'd be three. So he wasn't an old guy. Uh, So he uh, saw a little man standing by his bed, and he said the little man uh, turned and went into my bedroom where my wife and I were. Uh, and he felt like he went back to sleep, but then he woke up again and the little man was standing there again. Uh, and then the little man left and that would be, I guess when he told me that story, he was probably, probably about eight. And at that point, the, uh, alien abduction, certainly, certainly obviously, history that supports supports it, you know, back to the Millers and so forth. Right. Uh, but at that point, the, the, the books had not come out and people didn't really get it. it did, are you with me? Yes, I'm with you. Yeah. And so I didn't know anything about it. But uh, it was on his... Uh, his, he had the night terrors again when he was 13, the night before he turned 13. And then as far as I know, he's never had them again. Uh, but it was on the, after those night terrors of the 13th birthday, uh, we, we talked about it some more. And I don't know how much of the story remained uncontaminated by uh, other movies and things that had come along by that time. But by the time he's telling me this story now, I made the connection to the big wheel night. And that was, I mean, it took me a long time because I'm not the sharpest guy in the world. But, you know, I made that connection and it seemed to me, it didn't seem to me, that was when it started. Right. And so, uh, go ahead. so obviously, in my mind, I needed to know what I could know about this. So I started reading a good bit about it. And uh, had my dad, having been where he was in the government, uh, 
I think it was very easy for me to to fall into the story of alien agenda, which is a rogue government agent revealing this information under threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I I, I got to tell you something. You mentioned first of all, it's fascinating that. The fact that your father was in in such a place within the government, and basically, it sounds like his advice was stay away. Um, yeah, and then in and, those days, it absolutely was. He said, "Never tell anybody." Yeah, and then, and then you had a personal experience, and then uh, I want to talk. So, so that's fascinating in and of itself. But I want to talk about your thoughts on James Forrestal. Now, sure. for those who. Um, aren't familiar. If I'm correct, Forrestal was the first Secretary of Defense. He had been Secretary of the Navy. Um, I believe that he had been uh, uh, very, um, very uh, big on aircraft carrier battle groups uh, from the, the, the Second World War. Yeah, he had War been a pilot forward. in World War yeah. I. Yeah. So, and of course, there, I believe the first supercarrier, the USS Forrestal, was named after James Forrestal. So, a, a pretty um, weighty guy. He had a lot of gravitas. But he had a mental breakdown in the late forties. I believe. I believe as uh, well serving as uh, sec- well, uh, yeah, Secretary of Defense, or, or actually he had been dismissed. But there's there's always been a question because the thought was is that he jumped out of a window and committed suicide. But some people think there may have been uh, more to it than that. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that and how how you worked that into the book. Um, well, actually. The book pretty much opens with with that uh, with the Forrestal story, uh, with him in Bethesda uh, Naval Hospital, and there are sections of this book that are, in my mind, I've divided the book into kind of a uh, James A. Michener, if I can be so bold, or Leon Uris, where there the fiction of the book is built on actual history. Does that make sense? Yes. So anyone who lived through that knows that parts of it are absolutely true. Um, And what I tried to do was make the fiction, when it switches from the absolute historical truth to fiction, to make that as seamless as possible. So that uh, there's a connection, and it it makes the fiction more believable. <clears throat> now, uh, that said, as I go through this with you, um, parts of the fiction are fiction in that there is very little historical evidence to support it. None of the fiction is unsupported by anything. Mm. You with me? Yes. Okay. So... My view is that Forrestal's breakdown was coming at a time when we had spent, we, the United States, had spent at those days vast amounts of money we did not have to to end World War II. (laughs) Sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, in those days, the government, the federal government, was uh, much more responsible toward the fiduciary sides of of our plan. And uh, Forrestal was under, as Secretary of Defense, he was under an ever-tightening budget. 
at the same time, the Soviet Union was spending almost their entire gross national product on trying to take over the world. And so here we were, Forrestal was faced with fighting this, this new threat with a shrinking, with shrinking resources, and uh, the Soviet Union was doing everything they could to grow the resources. Right. Um, and so the, the, the official theory is that it, it just overwhelmed him, and he had this nervous breakdown. Now, as part of the official theory, and this is also official, uh, there were several people who said that Forrestal had confided in them, uh, Truman being one and General Twining being another, that uh, he believed he was being followed. And, you know, the thing is, if you think about the KGB in those days, he probably was. Right. Uh, but Forrestal did not, was not sure who was following. At one point, he thought it was Jewish uh, Zionists because his political position uh, was not to support Israel financially because he didn't have the money. Mm. And so at one point there was that. There was also uh, the theory that they were KGB agents following him. Um, but when you really read into some the letters and things, most of this stuff's available on the Internet. And uh, it, and I, I don't mean wacko net. I mean the real <laughs> net where you can get uh, you know documented uh, information. And uh, there were he he believed he described these people, and they so fit what later became known as the uh, men in black. Mm. Um. In Bethesda, he developed, actually before Bethesda Hospital, he developed this uh, fear of windows, which there wasn't, or may not still be, I don't think there still is a name for it, but it's a phobia about windows being unlocked. And, you know, there he was high up in the building, and every night the last thing he did before he went to bed was make sure his windows were locked. Uh, the next part of his tale is that and this is, once again, we're still in history here, is that the night he died, he'd been reading uh, the poem Achilles. And, and Achilles was very upset and had come to, and, and in, in the poem, uh, Achilles had reached a point where uh, Ajax's armor had been given to someone else at the Battle of Troy. And he was very angry because he was, you know, one of the victors of the battle, you know, one of the hardest fighters and, Right, uh, and he was trying to figure out how to seek his revenge, and there was a handwritten note uh, on a page next to the where the open book was uh, about that, and that makes people wonder if Forrestal may have been trying to seek his own revenge. Now, the other thing you have to understand about Forrestal is once he was put in Bethesda, no one was allowed to see him or talk to him for a long time. And finally, uh, his brother with, uh, had to hire uh, some attorneys to get him in the scene. And then his long-term priest uh, was allowed to see him once, but then he wasn't allowed to come back. 
So not allowing somebody to see a patient as a hospital is a red flag to me. Right. That, that what what are we afraid that he's uh, going to reveal? Now now here is the question though. Where do I I can certainly see? I mean, again, I think sometimes, particularly younger people, totally forget how tense that particular time in history was. Yeah. It was the, the United States and the Soviet Union, nose to nose. Uh, you know, there was thought that a shooting war could probably, possibly uh, break out at any time. I mean, uh, uh, there were hawks on both sides that wanted to go after the other one. So there had to be just, just forget the whole alien thing. There had to be tremendous, tremendous pressures on Forrestal, uh, yeah. not alone with, with Korea coming up and, and, and all of that. So they had to, Well, he like also a, had uh, McCarthyism was yeah, just around the yeah, corner. That's true. So really, so, you uh, know, everybody was suspected of being a Soviet agent. Right. So, so why do aliens come into this whole picture? Um, okay. <laughs> uh, World War II is over. During World War II, there was a project. In World War II... There was a secret weapon the United States had. The Germans had it as well. The Germans may have had it before us. And it was what was called the magnetic torpedo. And now in today's world of high technology, it just doesn't seem like much at all. Uh, but the premise of a magnetic torpedo is it's fired from a submarine. You shoot it toward the ship. And the idea is that it never hits the ship is that as it passes under the ship's beam by a few feet, the electromagnetic field of that ship detonates the torpedo. What's important about that is when a torpedo explodes, anything that explodes in the water, all of the force goes up. Okay? Right. When you hit the side of a ship, more than half of the damaged force is going up the side of the ship as opposed to into the ship. So let's say the theory was then, and I think it's been borne out, is that if there was a giant freighter, or as big as they got in those days, that if it took three torpedoes that impacted on the side of the ship to sink it, one torpedo in the middle of the ship, one magnetic torpedo, with the force exploding up, would break the beam of the ship, and the ship would sink. Therefore, the submarine could stay out to sea longer and do more damage. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, so, the Germans had it, we had it, and we were, we were the ones who needed a defense against it because the Germans weren't having convoys travel all over the oceans. And so, during uh, World War II, they came up with a way to uh, degauze a ship, which is to reduce... The magnetic field. Uh, Philadelphia experiment, do I hear that coming? It's kind of coming, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so it was degaussing the ship, but that wasn't really against the torpedoes. That was against electric mines, or electromagnetic mines, that would detonate next to the ship. In other words, the ship didn't have to hit it to detonate it. Uh, but those weren't terribly effective. I mean, if you rank torpedoes and mines, that torpedoes did far more damage than mines. Um, so as part of the experiment, um, the Philadelphia experiment did happen in Philadelphia, 
but it, it not, not much else of the urban legend is true about what we read about it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a there was a destroyer. This is you want you into this is very involved. Um, well, for folks, uh, well, well, basically, well, let me cut to the yeah, chase. Yeah, that sounds. The Philadelphia good. experience <clears throat> was uh, uh, involved Einstein and Richard Feynman, not Oppenheimer. He was not involved in it, but Einstein and Feynman and some others were. And the idea was. <clears throat> That if we could broadcast a elect a electromagnetic field that was powerful enough and focus it, that instead of every sh- every ship in the convoy having a very expensive apparatus to protect it from magnetic torpedoes, right. the destroyers circling the convoy, right. escorting them, could focus this magne- electromagnetic beam and uh, detonate the torpedoes, you know, even if it was only 50 feet away from the ship, it wouldn't do very much damage. Right. So it wasn't like some kind of death ray where everything's going to get blown out of the water, but the idea was, you know, you see the torpedo coming and you put the ray on it and it detonates before any damage is done. Uh, And there is, and I'm not going to go into the whole Philadelphia story because there's tons of it. Yeah, but a lot of uh, a lot of people a lot of people believe that uh, there was time travel and things. But the official one, or what I've heard over the years, is it really was a degaussing uh, experiment, which I never really understood why they would degauss a ship until you just explained it. So you explained a lot. <laughs> oh, good. But anyway, <clears throat> well, um, there was a ship in Philadelphia that was in a degaussing experiment, very similar to the time this uh, this. Uh, the ship involved in Philadelphia. I believe the ship involved in Philadelphia experience was the USS Hamilton, which had been, that's a long story, but it, 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 it makes perfect sense. The timing is right. And, uh, it just is covered. Whereas the Eldridge was on convoy duty during that time. And it, and it was in written in the logs of many other ships as it went by that the Eldridge passed the night or the Eldridge signaled this message or whatever. So the Eldridge, I guess theoretically, if the government went and uh, changed the logs of all these dozens of ships in the convoy in World War II, they could make it like the Eldridge was not on that convoy, but I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, Anyway, so what happened is that uh, the the experiment failed. The, the, The beam was not able to detonate the magnetic detonators at various levels and distances. Well, I did some, but they were so close. But the theory was uh, was actually the beam just wasn't strong enough. But what what did happen was as the beam went out, the the magnetic field, Mm -hmm. it collapsed upon itself. And once Einstein and Feynman understood this, they went to the government with, the idea of creating a different kind of weapon, a weapon that would be able to knock out communications. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. For command and control, you knock out communications, the the forces on the battlefield uh, can't talk to each other, you create chaos, and then you win the battle. 
Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it. But that at that time of the war, that was not near as important as ending the war. So the the atom bomb, as everybody knows, had like all the almost all the brain power and resources were going into that. <clears throat> and so this particular uh, item was given the name Project Rainbow, and it was <clears throat> put back. Uh, nobody really worked on it very much. And then after the atomic bomb, <clears throat> there was some work. Work was done on it, and it re- there was quite a few experiments out of uh, Almagora. And uh, then comes. Roswell. Now, in my book, this part is fiction, so I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to tell you this is all real. In the fiction part, there's a story, but essentially the story is that the Project Rainbow weapon is focused over the skies of uh, New Mexico, and a UFO the Roswell UFO, flies through the beam. It's, it's electronic communications and electronic operations quit working, <clears throat> and it crashes. Um, and then we go back into as much history as we possibly can of Roswell to show that Roswell really did happen. Uh, <clears throat> we also use history to uh, show that the components that had been gathered from Roswell uh, came back to Alamogorda, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and were divided. Many uh, were kept there at the research center, mm-hmm. but some went. Some that were classified as possible weapons were put on uh, transport planes and sent to Wright Patterson. Some that were. Uh, and Wright-Patterson at that time and to this day is still a place where the military, the Air Force, develops weapons for in-flight weapons. Uh, some of the components were sent uh, <clears throat> to what uh, was Vandenberg Air Force Base, which became the home of jet propulsion and non-traditional, uh, non-traditional flight energy. Some of it went to uh, what was then the Nevada nuclear test site, which had officially been closed down but still had skeleton crew there. Mm-hmm. And that was that whole base was reactivated, and that base, which is 10,000 square miles, I believe it is, still contains uh, Area 51. Uh, and so these components were put on planes that went to these bases. Now, do I really know what the components were? No. But I know that they were sorted and were put on planes. Uh, Then we have the rash of UFO sightings between uh, Roswell and the Washington, D.C. invasion in 1952. Right, and by invasion, I mean just seen everywhere. Uh, the the UFOs, uh, all of a sudden, here they all are, 
And in the very beginning, they were clustered around Roswell and Nevada area. And so the government was wondering, why are they here? Why here? <clears throat> and so they not they didn't fly everybody back together, but they did involve uh, Richard Feynman and I think Oppenheimer a little bit this time and a little bit of Einstein uh, and a group of people in the research facilities <clears throat> were trying to uh, think tank what was going on here. And they said, okay, what could uh, attract something from outer space? And the only thing that we know that was big enough then could have been a nuclear explosion, of which there had been several. Right. Uh, but then it was reasoned, well, the, the, the energy from the nuclear explosion travels at the speed of light, and the closest star system to us is four light years away, so it would take four years to get there, and if they were sitting on the pad and took off, it would take four years to get back, and it hadn't been that much time. So Feynman is the one who suggested that it might be uh, interdimensional, and as opposed to from a star. How else would, if it weren't interdimensional, how else would these beings know that we had detonated these weapons? Why do we think it was because we detonated the weapons? Is because the UFOs were all in that area to begin with. Well, not all, but the vast majority were in that area. And that was the only active nuclear arsenal in the world at that time was in that area. Was that Roswell Airfield? Right. Okay, so <clears throat> we in the book, we postulate that that's what brought them here, was that when a nuclear device goes off, it puts out an electromagnetic field or electromagnetic pulse that disturbs, well, first of all, it'll kill anything electronic mm -hmm. that it hits unless it's very heavily shielded. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the tactics that would have been used in the 60s or 70s had there been a nuclear war was to detonate uh, a series of, uh, nuclear bombs at 10,000 feet above major populated areas, and the idea was it would knock out all communications. Your car would not work. EMP. Yes, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, and so the theory became that we had used this Project Rainbow device to knock out a uh, UFO, the UFO had crashed here, but the UFO was here exploring the bigger EMP from the nuclear weapons. And Feynman's uh, lead, on, lead on this thing was that, well, for them to react as fast, whoever them are, it had to be interdimensional, not planetary. Um, and so we, and then I'm sure you know more than I do, that over the next few years, <clears throat> we shot down, uh, I think I think the ones that I've been able to verify, I think there was a total, including Roswell, of seven, including Aztec and some others around that area, that we shot down, oh, that came down, I shouldn't say we shot down. Uh, <clears throat> but we know that they built several more Project Rainbow projectors, and the last one <clears throat> that we know that came down was... 
witness from another aircraft carrier, USS Roosevelt, which happened to be the only ship in the Navy that had a rainbow projector on it. Hmm. Um, so we think that seven of these things were shot down by rainbow projectors, and then all of a sudden it stopped. We couldn't, for whatever reason, we weren't shooting them down anymore. <laughs> and, countermeasures. Yeah. They took countermeasures. So it sounds like somebody figured out some way to avoid it. Uh, then things kind of quieted down in 1950 50 and 51. But then in 52, we had uh, what you know, a lot of UFO authors call the invasion of Washington, D.C., which where there were several nights and airports all over that part of the country had radar signatures, jets were scrambled, uh, on and on and on. Uh, and now, and then, and then in the book, we switch to uh, some of the U.S. presidents who have had UFO experiences. Uh, and in fiction, this part is now fiction, is that the UFOs contacted uh, Truman and Twining and a couple of other people. Um, the, the aliens contacted them, and much the way they contacted uh, Forstel. And it, it could be a terrifying experience, as now, we know from abductions now. Right. Now, now, now well, let me ask you this. Now, the specific things, many of the specific things you talk about in the book are clearly fiction. And, you know, when you're, you're a fiction writer, you create to make a story. You know, uh, but, but let me ask you this. Even though specific things may be different in your accounts and so forth, do you think that something along the lines of what you're suggesting has happened, that there have been aliens that have visited, um, have been shot down, and somehow there has been contact between the U.S. government and those alien entities? Do you believe that to be the case in, in, in fact? Yes. That's a pretty straight answer. <laughs> ask, <laughs> ask a question, get a straight answer. So this, this book essentially is kind of like how that may have happened. Not necessarily yes. the way it did happen, but the way it may have happened. You know, it's been a fascinating subject, and that's why I really like to talk to people like you, because sometimes people see the destination and how some people believe in UFOs, and they think, oh, that's wacky, and it's out there, and it's crazy. But if you trace it back... There to to its roots to uh, the the Foo Fighters in World War II and to Roswell and uh, to the sightings I believe in 1952 I think it was in Washington D.C. There's some real reasons to believe that something, uh, particularly at that time, was really going on, and um, it's not you're not necessarily crazy if you believe there's something to it, but you have to go back and look at the history. I think the history is so important. It is, and you know, I guess we're running out of time, so my last word of warning is uh, the government has over the years become very, very efficient at uh, disinformation. And so when things happen uh, that where people witness things or so forth and have these experiences, the government's ability to uh, make that sound ludicrous to get you know, make people laugh about it, uh, and to make them think the person may be a little bit off, is is uh, very highly trained at this point, and that was one of the reasons I think my dad told me just don't say anything. 
because the more credible you are, the more credible your story is, the harder you're going to be hit. Right. Right. That makes sense. And, you know, again, um, I don't, I don't believe, um, you know, if you look back to those cold war, early cold war days, they were, pro, they were playing hardball and, yeah. um, I'm not saying that Forrestal was murdered, but I would not find it an impossibility because I think those guys played that way back then. Well, <clears throat> the last thought on the Forrestal is, theoretically, he uh, threw himself out of a small kitchenette window and tied his bathrobe to a radiator and the other end of it to his neck, his bathrobe belt, and the knot must have come loose and he fell to his death. Uh, when you look at the floor plans, which are available from those days of Bethesda Naval Hospital, and you look at that room and that window, uh, he was a large man. Uh, he would have had a really hard time climbing through that window uh, and then dropping. Um, and the, the radiator that his belt was tied to was so small, he probably would have at least pulled it out of the floor, if nothing else. So the the official theory for his death is very weak in my mind. Well, we'll leave it at that. But it sounds like a fascinating treatment. Where can people find the book? Because, uh, again, four and a half out of five stars on Amazon looks like a fascinating treatment. And I love the kind of taking uh, historical fact and then jumping using that as a jumping off point for a, a fiction book that uh, is thought provoking. Where can people pick it up uh, and find it? It's, it's available on Amazon Kindle and on uh, Barnes and Noble's Nook. It's not there is it's not in print. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, in this day and age, uh, it's a way to go. That's the way I'm doing my next book. So I'm taking a cue from people like yourself. The book is called Alien Agenda: Why They Came, Why They Stayed. Our guest has been Steve Peak. Steve, welcome, uh, welcome, welcome. You are welcome, <laughs> and thank you for being on the show. We certainly appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me, Jim. And thank you for tuning in to this edition of UFO Encounters. I appreciate you taking time to die a day, and always keep your eye to the sky. Bye, bye, everybody. <laughs>